Beer has always been synonymous with the reputation of Milwaukee. And Chicago has a significant role in that. More specifically, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. The fire started in a barn in Chicago and spread over three square miles of the city, destroying 11 of the city's 23 breweries. As a neighborly response, Milwaukee breweries, starting with Schlitz, shipped expansive cases of beer to Chicago through Lake Michigan. Soon later, with the help of brand loyalty, Schlitz became known as the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Although this can be seen as a proud example of how Milwaukee became a self-proclaimed beer capital of the world, there is a dark side to our drunk history. But first, Nate Imig goes all the way to your scene, downtown specifically, to check out a bar called Inmoxicated. Here's the scoop. Yeah, we're trying to normalize not drinking. My name is Jeff Gustin, and I am the manager of Inmoxicated. We have people that haven't drank for 25 years. They might be sitting next to somebody that just didn't feel like having a drink or dealing with the bar scene that night. But my thing was is I wanted to reproduce the corner bar. If you quit drinking for health reasons or anything along that line, you have to stay away from alcohol in order to do it, then you had to give up everything that you have in a typical bar. And he's right. This place is definitely a bar. You walk in and see a bartender behind the bar, customers on stools, there's music blaring, it's ACDC tonight, and a pool table in the back. Dennis and Ashley are regulars. I've actually found myself coming to a bar with no alcohol more than I've go to the regular bars now. <laughs> yep, I mean, I go so. to bars now and I just order like a tonic and some bitters. Just a tonic and bitters and it's like being here and you don't wake up with that hangover and it's definitely worth it. You still have all the same fun. And, and, and you know, I like, I like the machines. I like pull tabs. I like all that stuff. So to be able to go somewhere and do that and not have to have to drink and have to have to deal with it so there's never any pressure either over at the bar this patron lisa is giving the game simon a try you know the one with the the light up buttons and the sequence you have to remember it turns out it's still pretty hard even when you're not drinking but she says it's all about having fun here everyone's so nice and friendly it's become literally like (laughs) it's become like a group of people like just hanging out so it feels like you're just like going to someone's house and everyone's there but you have like 50 drinks to try. I'm literally on like, I think probably like my 30th drink that I've tried here today. So <laughs> they're, they're all delicious. I asked Lisa if she's ever felt that pressure to drink on a night when she just didn't feel like it. Oh yeah. I feel like probably for guys too, but definitely for girls, it's like, why are you not drinking? And it's um, like, there's definitely the pressure. Like, even if you say no, it's like, oh, just one. Like, cause I feel like people want you to be part of the group and you're not part of the group if you're not drinking. So here you don't have to worry about that. I even like come here and I do a shot of ginger. Like it's like you're at a bar when you sit down and you're like, I just need a shot. It's like I do my shot of ginger and you get like a healthy boost. So it's like yeah, you, you wake up right, and you wake up for work the next day, like you didn't go out, you feel good, so it's amazing. We've actually said that it's like being in the setting you almost feel drunk because it's like you're so giddy and happy to be around people will like dance and almost be like, Oh, we're not actually drinking, but you know, we're still having that much fun. Why, why do you need alcohol to have fun? Alcohol is the only drug on this planet that you have to explain to somebody why you don't use it. And I realize we're in Wisconsin. You know, we hit the top 10 of the most drinking counties every time the survey comes out. But think about it. Is it really something to be proud of? Uh, you know, I don't think so. And a lot of people feel that way too. 
This is Uniquely Milwaukee. It's everything you love about community stories, but more in depth. Giving the stories the time and attention they deserve. Changing perspective one episode at a time. I'm your host, Saddam Fathayed, and this is Uniquely Milwaukee. Stories that stick with you. There's a 2018 USA Today article that listed the drunkest cities in America. Out of a list of 20, there was 10 Wisconsin cities on the list. Even comedian Louis Black had something to say when he performed in 2008. I love Wisconsin. I love coming here. I perform here uh, a lot because I've discovered that you people apparently have some sort of federal grant for drinking. It's, you're insane. You pay less for liquor than anybody I know anywhere in the country. Nobody pays less for liquor than you. What are you, what are you, what are you, how? how? I come here because basically if I spend four days here drinking, and even with the plane ticket, it's cheaper than drinking in New York. But what if you clash with the culture? What if you're someone that's trying to stay sober in a city with a bar in every corner? What does sober living look like when alcohol is closely tied to Milwaukee's culture? The first person I spoke to to unravel this mystery was Christine Alstrup, Vice President of Clinical Services at Meta House. Um, Meta House has been around now for almost 60 years. We started in 1953, and Meta House has always been a facility for women only. And so early on, Meta House recognized that women need different treatment than men. And since that time when we started, we have always done gender specific substance use disorder train, uh, treatment for women. One thing that makes Meta House stand out is that it's a residential facility not only for women, but for their children as well. They have 35 beds and 15 additional beds for kids. For individuals utilizing the outpatient clinic, women can come during the day, get treatment for their substance use disorder, and drop their kids on their on-site daycare. Christine, you mentioned that treatment looks different for women versus men. What did you mean by that? Men and women sometimes, uh, not always, but come to their substance use, um, the abuse of a substance through different um, ways. And oftentimes for women, it's to deal with internal things going on or to feel more comfortable in themselves. So um, sometimes it's a way to socialize, right? If you're an introvert or um, not the head of the party, but you want to be in that social life, you soon discover that alcohol or another substance kind of loosens things up and you just um, enjoy the party more or more social. That's the case for Emily Meyer, who's a case manager at Meta House and also in her 12th year of long-term recovery from alcohol and substance abuse. I would say like I started using um, in high school. So I started drinking. I remember being a little kid and just, I don't know, like always daydreaming, (laughs) like, like having to live in my head, having to live in stories in my head. Um, 
And I think like part of that was like this like escape thing, Mm -hmm. you know, like I was a little kid. I had a lot of anxiety. Um, Like I was a little hypochondriac when I was five, you know, so like I just had an extreme amount of anxiety. And then growing up, like I was kind of made fun of. And, you know, like I was a nerdy band kid, you know, I did speech, I did, you know, like I had like frizzy hair, you know, like things like that, that were kind of easy targets. Right. And so I was kind of, um, I always felt different and left out. And, um, when I found alcohol for the first time, I didn't feel left out and I felt cool, you know, like that was a big thing too. Cause I like, I don't think I've ever felt cool in my life until that moment. And, um, like this, the, actually what happened is, um, one of the first times that I was drinking, um, we ran out of alcohol and I was like, I got this, like I can solve this. And I was like, probably, I don't know, 15, 16. And, um, I went down to the gas station and I like put a 24 pack on the counter and they were like, are you 21? I was like, absolutely. And I look like I'm 12, right? And <laughs> and they're like, is. yeah, exactly. And then they said to me, uh, you know, if you're working with the cops, you have to tell us. No. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I'm, t- I'm totally 21. And they winked at me and they like gave me it. Mm. And uh, I like saved the party. I was cool <laughs> for like the first time ever, you know? And, um, and so that was kind of like, oh, this is, this is my solution, you know, of feeling you know, like an outcast, like unlovable. And it solved that for me until like my solution became my problem. You know, I think a lot of us can identify with those moments where, especially in high school, that tender age where someone acknowledges you or you're part of a crew and you're fitting in and you're lo- you're no longer feeling like the weird one. So I can, I, I completely understand that feeling. But when did you start that road to recovery? Mm, I would say... Well, I remember I was living in this house and it was like me and six other people and like a little five-year-old and three ferrets and two dogs. And it was just like this nutty house, right? Right. Where everyone had like a drug and alcohol problem, like everybody. And somebody found an Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous book and they gave it to me. And I remember feeling so offended. Like, out of all these people, like, you pick me? (laughs) Like, why is that? But um, I kept it, weirdly. And then when I moved, I still had it. Mm -hmm. And I opened up the book one night when I was, like, real messed up. And it said something like, if you can, you know, go out and try and find out if you're alcoholic. Like, set out to drink, you know, like, two or three drinks. And I was like, okay, well, if I can, like— do two or three. I'll do three. And then like I went out (laughs) and then as as we were out, I was like, you know, tonight's not really a good night for this. I'm going to do this a different night. And then I ended up like doing a bunch of Molly and wearing my friend's like dog sweater as a scarf. And the next day I woke up and I was like, oh no, like this was the test. I like failed the test, (laughs) you know? And that still wasn't like the moment I did anything about it, but it was like, it was a moment of clarity for me. Mm -hmm. Shortly after that aha moment, Emily was arrested around her 23rd birthday, and the court ordered her to seek treatment. During that time, Emily began to better understand herself. It occurred to me during treatment, like I was like, oh, like I do this, and this makes my sadness worse, Mm -hmm. and then I do it to fix my sadness, and it makes it worse. So I'm like stuck in this like loop. And I think a big thing for me was 12-step recovery. Like some people came in who were like young, cause I was 23 at the time. 
And there were some young women who like shared part of their stories and like had similar histories. Like I have a sexual abuse history and they shared that and they were talking about how like happy and like free they feel. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I feel like I saw like myself in them, but I didn't have like any happiness, you know, at that point. Right. And I was like, it was intriguing. Like, how do I get there? Yeah. Because there's parts of you with that person. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. And, like, yeah. I, at, towards the end of my using, like, I never laughed. Like, I would make sounds mm-hmm. when I knew something was supposed to be funny. But, like, I didn't have, like, enough, like, joy in my soul to be able to, like, laugh. Right. And so, like, I saw these people who were, like, happy and, like, laughed and smiled and it looked like they meant it. Right. And I was, like, intrigued by that. This, this is super interesting. How long did it take for you to actually feel that genuine happiness or mm. content? Well, I think some people stop using and they feel better, yeah. you know, right away. And I'm like not one of those people. <laughs> I fine. stopped using yeah. and uh, I felt anxious because all of a sudden, like everything, all this trauma that I had was like, now you have to look at it, you know? And so it was just like... <laughs> Like this big like wave of trauma. And so for me, my story was I had to like get a little bit worse before I got better. And maybe it's not even worse. Maybe it's just I had to allow myself to feel, Mm -hmm. which I hadn't been doing. I'll say this. Like when I would go to 12-step meetings, I would see people interacting and I would see people who didn't fit together. Like there's like this mom looking person and this like guy who looks like he just got out of prison, you know, and they were like pals. And I was like, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. And they were happy and laughing and hugging. And um, I felt comfortable. The feeling in the room of like people who had like lived the kind of life that I lived, who now were just like really happy Mm -hmm. and they would hug and it was uncomfortable For me, because I hadn't really had, like, just, like, a genuine, warm, like, hug from people in a while. And um, it felt, like, foreign, but also, like, really awesome, Mm -hmm. you know? And I started to feel, like, I think I felt safer in that room with all those people than I felt even when I was, like, by myself. Right. You know? Like, that was, like, my safe space. And so even though I wasn't, like, maybe, like, feeling joy, I was feeling, like, safe and warm and like, okay. So how, how many years have you been in long-term recovery? So I'll have 12 years clean. Um, yeah. Uh, on July 1st of. Oh, it's coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. How does that look like for you? Maybe like year one to year Mm -hmm. 12. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like super different. Like I think at first it was like, literally there were moments when I had to be like five minutes at a time. Like, I'm not going to, like, drink or use for the next, like, five minutes. And then I'll reevaluate and figure mm-hmm. out what to do next, you know? And there would be these waves of just, like, intense cravings that were, like, if you don't use, you're going to die. Right. You know? And I had to, like, reach out. And I had to, um, you know, it had to get bad enough that, like, the fear of, like, my life continuing was greater than the fear of, like, this change, this like mystery change. Mm -hmm. So I think like I got to this point where I was like, no matter what happens, I can't, I'm not going to do it. Right. You know? And, um, that was like year one, right? Like really holding on for like dear life. Mm -hmm. And, um, it got progressively easier. And like now it honestly is like not even a thought, but I know 
that it can come back because I didn't have a craving for probably like five years. And then I went to um, my cousin's funeral and he died of an overdose. And I had like the most intense like physical craving that was like, again, like if you don't use, you're going to die. And I was just like, oh, this is why I've kept going to meetings. It's not that they just help me with my drug use, though. They really help me with like, how do I live life differently? You know, you mentioned to me that you came to Milwaukee on your fourth year of recovery. So what did that look like for someone in recovery, staying sober, but like living in a city where you're surrounded by alcohol all the time and it's it's prevalent in our culture? I find a lot of things to do. Yeah. I do things at the Urban Ecology Center. I do things at the Milwaukee Rec Department. Um, I go to like the art museum when they used to have those like MAM events. Yeah, I love the silent disco nights. Those yeah, are really fun. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, some of this stuff has some alcohol at it, but it's not like the driving force, you yeah. know? Um, I mean, there's Milwaukee has beautiful parks, so I do a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and also, if people are new in recovery and struggling to find like a safe, sober environment. There's there's like different clubs mm -hmm. that are specifically for people in recovery, like the Alano Club, um, the Pass It On Club. And so those are strictly sober environments. They have dances, oh, I love you that. know, they have different events, dinners. And yeah. so there's those kinds of things to do too. You know, I want to say growing up as a Muslim, um, it's incredibly common to do things or go places that are in a dry environment, like our weddings or gatherings. Um, and I know that can be strange for people and feel weird, but I think the most important thing isn't, you know, the liquids that are around you or things that enable you to have fun, but it's being present with people. And I love that these events and clubs are providing that for folks um, and creating a community at the end of the day. I also want to add that this topic can be incredibly hard. And if this conversation, you know, stirred up some emotions for you, let's take a deep breath together. If you stay with us till the end of the episode, there's going to be a special song that we're going to play that's recommended by someone in recovery. Coming up next, we're going to be talking to someone that is sober by choice and really abstaining from alcohol in solidarity. I'm also going to be chatting with someone that has dedicated their career to giving back to the recovery community. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. You and your car have a lot of memories together. Long trips, traveling with friends and family, and maybe even a karaoke session with Radio Milwaukee. If you're not using your car much these days, consider donating it to support our programming. You keep all the memories, and your car will support all the music you enjoy together. Visit RadioMilwaukee.org slash cars to learn more and schedule your free donation pickup. If you're just joining in, we are continuing to dive into sober living and the contrast it has in a city that revolved its culture around alcohol. You know, I frequently check Reddit and specifically the Milwaukee Reddit page. Just this past week, I randomly came across a post titled, Feeling Like an Outsider Because I Don't Drink. And that post had over 50 comments of strangers sharing the same sentiment or giving advice on cool things to do in Milwaukee. One of the comments I saw stood out to me. So I decided, you know, here goes nothing. And I crafted a message that hopefully didn't come off as creepy, but informative, and we connected. My name is Seth Eby. I live here on the east side of Milwaukee. Been living in Milwaukee for five to six years now, and I love it. Um, 
I come from Racine, Wisconsin, so I'm a local boy, I guess. Thank you for taking time speaking to me. For all you know, I honestly could have just like been a troll, but I guess sometimes you can trust strangers on the internet. I don't tell my parents I, <laughs> no. I have a lot of friends on the internet because no. they'd be like, why like, don't why you go outside Stranger more? danger too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you commented on a Reddit post and you said, I cut back on drinking to the point where I lost most of my friends. I kept down drinking and now I look at it differently than most of my friends. So Seth, let's let's talk about that. Um. Well, yeah, I've typically worked jobs in the service industry. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you make a lot of friends through those and everything, but the idea is you work, you know, all day or something, and then you get let out, and then you all the bars are open, so mm-hmm. and it's past nine o'clock, so you can't go and like buy any alcohol for yourself at your house. Your option is to go to the bar, mm-hmm. and then like when I stopped going to the bar after work, and I I just didn't want to do it anymore. It's like, oh, you don't like us anymore. You're you're refusing to hang out. And I'm just, no, it's not. Like, if you wanted to do anything else, right? I would love to do that. You're just drinking, and I'm not, I don't really want to. Why do you not partake in drinking or, like, have cut back? Um, purposely, uh, I really want to show my mom, who has really had a big problem with alcoholism mm. for the better part of my life, that, you know, you can live without alcohol and you can have a good time without alcohol. It's not necessary. It's not a key component. Mm -hmm. You can do that. People do it all the time. It's Mm -hmm. not unheard of. And that's the thing. It's, I go over to her house and it's three o'clock and I'm like, Hey, we should start making dinner. And she's opening a bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. And then I finish making dinner and it's Kind of like, oh, I don't really want to eat because I, I'll lose my buzz. Mm. Oh, that's that's a problem. You should eat. <laughs> that's a problem then because you got to have your strength and your health. And, you know, just drinking all the time really dilutes your mind and ruins your liver and things mm-hmm. like that. So it's, it's health too. It's not all about um, just having a good time. Seth decided to show his mom this alternative lifestyle shortly after the pandemic started. His mother is a lawyer, and he started to notice a shift in his mother's behavior. The big one was that she would miss appointments, specifically court dates. So Seth, you said that this action that you've been taking has changed your social dynamics. How have you managed to adapt to that? So one of the things that kind of turned a light on in my head when I kind of stopped drinking was I asked myself this question, what was your most creative outlet when you were younger, like a, like a child, you know, what, what did, what did you love doing? Well, I liked, you know, I had these blocks, I'd play with blocks, I'd try to make something out of art with that. Or, you know, I, I love sports and things like that. I'm not as athletic as I once was. So I found um, disc golf, it's all all around Milwaukee here. It is still surrounded by drinking because there's beer gardens at most places. But you can go out and you hike in the woods and throw a disc, and you're honestly way better at it when you're not drinking. <laughs> yeah, You're better at a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, you're better at a lot of things when you're not drinking. And it it helps to know, like, you can see progress and accomplishments just by things that you can make. Mm-hmm. Like, let's say you're good at sewing or knitting or anything, or someone taught you something when you were a kid and 
you can remember that now and and you can kind of revamp like a passion that you used to have. One thing that's a key element in recovery is a sense of community. No one does community better than Jason Gonzalez, founder of Fourth Dimension Recovery Center. Jason, I would love for you to walk me through your journey. So I grew up in, in like I said, in River West um, and really lived a, a pretty a pretty good life, um, a really good childhood. I had a, a family that, that was unbelievably supportive. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, over time I, I ruined that life <laughs> with, with massive amounts of drinking. Um, and then eventually it was, it was the inability to stop, to stop drinking. Really, I mean, it started like like a lot of people um, in my experience was a lot of people where at one point it was it was drinking with friends and then going out to bars and then ended with me just locked up in my house, um, drinking every night, watching that 70s show, mm-hmm. like <laughs> passing out and then uh, and then waking up and um, thoroughly hating my life but still not having the the ability to to stop yeah um, and, and just keep on going you know when when i when i took my first drink I, I was in high school and there was something that that happened to me in that moment where i felt like some <laughs> it's not really dramatic but it was almost like something came down and, and kissed me on the forehead and said everything is going to be okay yeah. Uh, and that was the first time that I that I experienced that, uh, because before that, you know, my head was all over the place, and um, I, I want to do this and look at that person. I want to be that. And I'm just kind of like scattered, and and for once, alcohol provided that that sense of of ease, yeah. ease and peace and comfort that I'd been looking for for so long. And oddly enough, then that was also the thing that that destroyed my life. Wow. Yeah, that that was incredibly powerful. And thank you for being open and sharing that with me. So what when was the turnaround moment for you? The thing that makes me an alcoholic is my reaction to alcohol when I take it in. When I take a drink of alcohol, I need to drink more. Right. Um, that's kind of what happens in, some, in my head. And so when I when I stopped when I stopped drinking, uh, I had this. I remember it was this one day. It was it was the day after Locust Street Days. And uh it was really sunny out, and uh, I had this thought in my head, which was that everything that I ever wanted was never going to happen, and from this day forward, everything was going to get a whole lot worse, and it was real, and I felt it, and uh, and I was scared, and my only answer to that was to drink. It was a few weeks later that uh, I had another thought, which was, and it wasn't anything significant. It was, you better stop, um, and for some reason that time, I... I did something about it. How old were you when you had that thought? You better stop. 28. 28. Okay. Yeah. And how old are you mm-hmm. now? Uh, 41. Oh, wow. So you've been sober since you were 28. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. really remarkable. Yeah. Early on, when Jason started his recovery, he found a community of other folks who were sober. He recalled being observant. He would see how they would interact with families, how they held on to jobs. It became clear that it was a guiding force to keep going. So naturally... During his fifth year of sobriety, it was his turn to give back, and that is when he opened up Fourth Dimension. I thought I should be doing something more. I was teaching at the time. I had five hundred dollars in my bank account, and uh, I invited people into my my home um, who were struggling, brand new, and uh, 
and it was just kind of like, well, watch how I do it, you know? And, um, when they left, it was two became four and four became another floor. And then we opened up a women's house and just started slowly started growing into, into a community that I craved. You know, I have to ask that moment of clarity that you were talking about before you got sober, where you felt scared and basically that none of your dreams were going to be accomplished. Now that time has passed, do you feel the same sentiment at the age of 41? No, no. I, um, I have, I have a lot of hopes, you know, um, and not only for me, but like I said, I, you know, my life right now is, is trying to grow our community, um, in, in fourth dimension. So, you know, I have, I have goals and, um, and a vision for, for what that might look like Mm -hmm. there. I have goals and a vision for what my, my family looks like. I'm married. I have two kids, um, which is definitely not something I had when I was, when I was drinking. Um, so what do I want my family to, to be like, um, that maybe not even necessarily do, but how do I want us to be, Mm -hmm. um, in the world and with each other, uh, working with my wife to figure that out. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't feel absolutely hopeless. Like I once did when I, when I drank and I realized that everything was going to get a whole lot worse. Um, it wasn't even just the sense of, of depression i mean it was impending doom it mm-hmm. was the sense of like everything is ending and it's ending very quickly that's what i saw um now it's almost opposite where i uh i have a lot of i have a lot of vision a lot of hope and uh, and there's a lot of stuff that's that's really cool that's coming and, yeah. and i can see it you know i'm really happy to hear that jason i really am Addiction is a disease that doesn't discriminate. It affects all of us, whether we're like Seth, where we know someone who is struggling, or we're like Emily, where we crave a sense of acceptance and a way to calm our anxieties. It's not a far stretch to say that there's a stigma around rehabilitation. You know, Jason expressed to me that when he opened his home to folks that are recovering, his neighbors were worried. And that made me think about how we can support the recovery community. And the way that we could do that is by being open for a dialogue and to listen. And if you made it to the end of this episode, you just did. Talking about addiction can be triggering. And if you were listening to this episode and you feel somewhat overwhelmed, give yourself that grace to breathe and just make sure to be kind to yourself today. I'm going to leave you with a final jam, so to speak. I did have a thought earlier. Yeah. So um, there's a song that I've been listening to lately that I think is like very um, about alcohol and drug use and recovery. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if you've heard Super Bloom by Mr. Wives. I have not, but I'm definitely going to. But it is so good. And that chorus is like perfect.
Thank you for listening to Uniquely Milwaukee. I am your host, Sadam Fatayed. Thank you to Nate Imig, our executive producer, and Kenny Perez, our audio engineer. Thank you to our marketing team led by Sarah Lar. Graphics on our wonderful logo was made by Aaron Bagata. Our community engagement manager is Maddie Reardon, and Dan Reiner handles our social media accounts. And a big thank you to our members for making Uniquely Milwaukee possible and providing a platform where we can have these type of conversations. Tune in next Monday for our next episode. This is Salam Fatayir.